Good morning. Before we get started, I just want to do a little special thank you uh, since we've kind of had that theme going on. Mike and Lori McGoy over here, stand up, raise your hands, do whatever. Yes, they are leaving us right after the service. Their truck is packed and they're going to Oregon. Thank you. They have been here longer than me. And so thank you so much, guys. I don't know, the last 15 men's retreats probably wouldn't have happened had Mike not uh, put them together, and he wouldn't have done that had Lori not said, get it. So um, thank you guys so much, really, sincerely. Thank you for um, your service here, and um, we'll miss you. We'll miss you. First telegraph message was sent in 1844. And it went between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. And the first message was, what hath God wrought? Which was a, aren't you glad you weren't born back then? <laughs> anyway, it was a way of kind of referencing the nation of Israel and talking then about America being built into this great nation. Little did they know that in less than two decades, the nation would be torn apart in civil war. But this by this machine, this ability to start to communicate down uh, electrical lines was developed by Samuel Morse, and he is, gets credit for the Morse code that they used. Um, and it revolutionized long-distance communication by transmitting down these electrical lines. By the time you get to 1866, on the other side of the Civil War, a telegraph line was laid across the Atlantic, and it enabled communication between us and Europe. And they had a slogan. The slogan at this, at this time was two weeks and two minutes. Because that's how long it took for um, things to be communicated between the continents until this line was laid. And it was the telegraph that eventually gave rise to the telephone. And then radio, television, internet, and the whole, it just changed the whole nature of information. Before the telegraph and the telephone and the internet, information traveled not at the speed of technology, but at the speed of travel. About 35 miles an hour on a train or about 10 or 15 on a horse. And what that did was it, it, it made information more practical. Um, it, it made it more about what we could and should do. Can you imagine before the telegraph, if you had the weather's about to turn bad, that information was something you needed to do something about right then. And if you got somehow, the, the weather's about to turn bad in Maryland, well, you didn't really care. Unless you had relatives in Maryland. Neil Postman, uh, a cultural critic back in the uh, 20th century, in a book he wrote called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, great insight into some of this. He said, telegraphy uh, gave a form of legitimacy to the idea of context-free information. That is, to the idea that the value of information is, need not be tied to any function it might serve. The telegraph made information into a commodity, a thing that could be bought and sold irrespective of its uses or its meanings. Today, this is more than ever true of us. We live in what's called the information age. 
And it's having a significant impact on how you're listening to me right now. It's the air you breathe. You, you can't help it. And how we interact with the, with the messages and the information that we get. Neil Postman again said this, the tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. We are glutted with information, drowning in information, have no control over it, and don't know what to do with it. Jesus knew this was true. And he speaks really specifically to it as he closes up his sermon on the mount. Let me pray for us and we're going to take a look. God, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to gather and to express our thanksgiving to you. May our week be filled with thoughts of just how gracious you have been. But God, now we gather and we don't, we don't want to just, as James says, we don't want to just listen to the word and be deceived, but we want to, we want to do what it says. We don't want to be someone who just hears and forgets or hears and walks away, but that God's your purposes would be accomplished. And so please, please help us to do that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The Sermon on the Mount, as, as uh, Jesus gets to his conclusion, it's, it's quite interesting. As we've now been, four, I think, 14 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount alone, much less the rest of the book of Matthew. So well done. Way to stay with it. It's, but this 14 weeks is one sermon. And so after all of the admonitions that he gave on that hillside to that group of people, right there with the Sea of Galilee right in the background, he closes it in such a way where it's quite interesting. He says, listen, this is going to be so hard. So you need to ask and just keep on asking for help. You need to seek it and knock on the door and keep on knocking. And if you do, I'll help you. I'll help you live in this way. But beginning at verse 13, there's a couple of gates, a couple of ways that you might respond to this. There's a couple of messengers that you're going to hear that are going to come. And he says, there's going to be truth and false messages that comes to you. There's going to be a narrow way and a wide way. And then he gets to this last warning and he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now that phrase puts them into practice is actually just one Greek word, poeo, and it means to do. To do. Over 500 times in the New Testament we find this word. It's the most common word for things like do and act and get rid of and get done and does and practice. It's all about do. Hearing or knowing and being informed is not enough. It's just not enough to live the life that Jesus has described. Now, responding by faith is enough for salvation. 
But a simple response with no action following it is not enough to live like Jesus. So don't misunderstand. I'm not saying you got to work your way into heaven. I'm saying that when you respond in faith, you will want to work into heaven. Not to get there, but because you're really already there. And the truth is, is in our day, we are informed, but we do very little about the information we have. We know so much and do so little, and this is catastrophic in our life of faith because we think we can deal with this and the message that you're hearing and the truth that we read in the same way that you, re you deal with the information that you get on your Twitter feed. And there are different categories. He's making a point here. Jesus is trying to say, doing is what matters. If you think you've got it and you don't do, you ain't got it. Now, if you take a look at how this, this passage is uh, translated in other versions, it's consistently seen in the exact same way. In the ESV, it says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. In the NLT, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it. New Revised Standard Version, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. You must do something. You must follow up. You must take action. And that is the proof of hearing it correctly. Now, the found, Jesus is going to go on and lay a foundation of this. And he's going to use the example of a foundation as the way he lays it. It's really kind of cool the way the master teacher teaches so well. Let me read the rest of the passage to you. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them in practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. Now that word for foolish is the word we get our, where we get our word moron. So just say it. Don't get mad at me. You might say even stupid. But that's an S word. We don't use that. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Perhaps one of the greatest examples of not taking the foundation into consideration is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's built in the city of Pisa, and the Greek word Pisa actually means, do you know? Not pizza, but that's a, <laughs> Pisa, Pisa. No, it means marsh. It means marsh. And because Pisa sits on the, the coast of the Mediterranean, it's actually there's the topsoil and even underneath the subsoil is soaked in seawater, which creates unstable foundations. You may not even know this, but there are actually two other bell towers that have been built in Pisa and they lean too. Now you couldn't know this 
just looking at the beginnings. In fact, the builders of the Leaning Tower of Pisa found out in the third, on the third level it was leaning. Now look how many more levels they kept going. <laughs> what? They actually, you can't tell this, but they actually tr start trying to lean it back the other way. They built it just a little out of square, leaning it back the other way, and it didn't work. It just made it worse. I mean, I think it's like leans over by 15 feet. And what the difference between what's on the surface and the substance beneath makes all the difference in the world. And in a Middle Eastern context, it's especially interesting because the bedrock is pretty shallow in most of the area that Jesus is teaching in, in his day. In fact, if you really want a lot of sand, you know where you go to get it? Dried out creek beds. That's where sand seems to be the most plentiful. Everywhere else, it's, it's, it's not like Pisa. But the substance beneath is where the life is worth living. It is the, it's the thing that really makes life good. And not just hoping that it'll turn out all right, but living intentionally below the surface. Now, Christians certainly do hope. Eugene Peterson said, hoping does not mean it doing nothing. It's not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusion. It's just simply easier to build on sand. There's nothing that needs to be cleared away. It's easy to smooth out and go. It's just easier but it's in that ease that you pay a price long-term. We build strong and durable foundations for a meaningful life by going about our assigned tasks. That's what Eugene Peterson said. And what are those assigned tasks? Well, it's good that you ask. That's what the sermon was about. That's exactly what Jesus said. Things like let your light shine before others in, by your good deeds. Fight anger with, and lust. Keep your promises. Love your enemies. Quietly give to those in need. Store up heavenly treasures, not earthly ones. Stop worrying about tomorrow. Trust God today. Do not judge. Talk to God all the time. When you review that list, you can say, oh, well, that's why it took us 14 weeks to get through. Because those things are really hard to do. And Jesus knew that. And so he said, ask for help, but don't just know them. Don't just go home this afternoon and say, Sermon on the Mount, check. At the end of it, it says, that the wind and rains and storm came and it blew against the house and it fell with a great crash. Now, this is a very cool word. It's actually a compound word that means mega crash. Literally, the word, the prefix is where we get our word mega from. Mega crash. 
It's, it's this, that it was loud, it was horrible, it was terrible. I, I spent some time serving as a chaplain in the San Jose Police Department. And it's, think about this, when, I, when, you, when a chaplain goes into those situations, it's almost always a death situation, a loss of life, and they, they don't have a pastor. They don't have a church, but they know that God's involved somewhere in this, and so they need someone there. Got the scene? So it's not like one of y'all or happened, happened to lose a loved one. Well, you would call the church. You would call us. You would, you, somebody, but I'm walking in. I've never seen these people ever. And, the, and I'm going to tell you every single time, it was a great crash. Not to their own fault. They just knew God was involved in this thing and there was, hopefully there was a heaven, but they didn't have a foundation. And the grief the uncontrolled, expressed grief in every one of those situations was a mega crash. But here's the thing. It doesn't say if the storm comes. It says when. It doesn't say Build the kind of foundation that will stand against the storm and then you won't need it. But that it will be strong against the storm. In 2018, Hurricane Michael crashed against the peninsula of Florida. It actually happened on my birthday in 2018 is when it touched into an area right there on the peninsula, one of those places that it hit was called Mexico Beach, Florida. It's hard for me to remember that because it's just a confusing place. It's like saying, I live in Texas, California. The winds were at 140 knots or 161 miles an hour when it touched down and hit the shoreline. And over $25 billion of damages was done. There was a particular place there on uh, the, the coast, right on the ocean, that had been ridiculed for the care that had been given when it was built. When it was built, they, they paid almost 50% too much and drilled down 40 feet deeper for the foundation, 40 feet deeper than anyone else. The kind of roof they put on and the kinds of siding they used were all top-notch because they said, listen, this is it's Florida. I mean, hurricanes happen. And this place was called, in Mexico Beach, Florida, was called the Sand Palace. And the morning after the storm, this is that beach. The house was built with reinforced concrete. The owners were interviewed after the storm. How come your house stood? And he said, we built it for the storm. This is the intention that Jesus has for your life. 
If I could draw a picture for you, that was what it would look like. He wants you to be able to stand when the storms come. And he's given us this warning because he's afraid you'll just hear it and do nothing with it. There's a commentary at the end of the sermon. Once, once the red letters stop, Matthew puts a little bit of a commentary in there at verse 28. And he says this, when, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The word for amazed there is a compound word to hear it and get knocked down by it. It's actually a word for striking you. You can't hear it back there, can you? You don't know what I'm talking about. Something going off back there behind me. Somebody's alarm, and it's, just, it's probably mine. But it's not. It's the idea. Okay. That's all right. I'll just show you how shallow I am. I, don't, I can go on without it. Here we go. It's like being thunderstruck when the people heard this, that this was what was asked of their behavior. This is how the life was to live. And this warning at the end, they are awestruck by this teaching. One of the disadvantages of doing it over 14 weeks is you've sat now so long in the Sermon on the Mount that you're no longer struck by it, possibly. It should still sit in your, when I read it earlier, you should say, what, wait, love my enemy? What, talk to God all the time, what? Don't worry. What? Give my stuff away? That is how the people responded there. And I think that's an appropriate response. So I just want to kind of close it off with this. All right, how do we move forward? What do we do with this? Well, you can take the, you can go back and review um, the Sermon on the Mount, that would certainly be great. And you can just ask yourself, which of those areas am I, am I slacking off on or not doing anything about? But let me, let me just take, excellent book came out last year, excellent book um, by a guy named Jay Kim. And he hadn't said a word about it, which um, I will. It's called The Analog Christian. And he basically takes the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and he narrows them into three areas. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you those three areas. Because the Christian life is about living and growing and increasing in these three ways. It's not all that it is, but do this and your foundation will be deep. Contentment, resilience, and wisdom. You should get out your phone and take a picture of this slide. Contentment, which means I'm growing in my self-control and in my generosity and my attitude towards the things I have. 
Are you mindful of that or are you doing something with it? Resilience means I, I'm gaining strength. My faith is stronger. I'm becoming more faithful. I'm coming more optimistic because I have hope. Is that the, what's being produced in your life? Is there more wisdom in your life? Am I, am I engaging in the spiritual practices that are actually introducing me to inroads into God's grace in ways I never knew? I'm beginning to understand what he asks of me and what he wants of me. And it emphasizes two disciplines mostly, or two expressions of it, an expression of repentance and humility. Is that, is that measurably growing? And you might ask someone who knows you well rather than you be your own judge. Are, are you gentler, kinder, less prone to anger, more prone to share? Now, I'm not talking about in the past week, but let's just take the last 14 weeks. Has, has that been produced in you? And if you say, well, maybe one of those areas, one of those areas you'd like to really emphasize. Okay, well, what, let's just take the holiday season and say, you know what? This season, I'm going to get up every morning and pray about my contentment. As I get bombarded by literally thousands of messages every single day telling me I am not enough, I need more junk. Instead, I'm going to bombard my soul with the reality that I am all I have all I need in Christ. And I'm going to ask God to increase my contentment. That's mine. That's, that's my application. I still sit. I have the truck I want. And I still sit and look at other people's trucks. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just, I'm so, I'm, it's so embarrassing, really. And if you were to see my truck, you'd be like, man, dude, good truck. And I'd be like, yeah, except it ain't that good. I want to grow in this. No, I don't want your truck. I like my truck, but I mean, I'm, thanks. That's awful generous. Well, I don't know. Let me see it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Now, this is hard. This is hard. So strategy, the, the primary component of this strategy, strategy is let's do what Jesus says. Let's ask and keep asking. Let's seek and keep seeking. Let's knock and just keep knocking. Because he promises us that he will grow in us a foundation that is deep. In fact, he is that foundation. Jesus knew, he knew this was hard. And so it's interesting, he didn't give any rules really about the church and how it's to function. He didn't say meet at nine and then if you're full enough, go to, go to another one at 1030. He didn't say anything about sing four songs and then do announcements with Lisa and then, you know, have somebody with, you know, preferably bald come up and share when Jay lets him. He just said these two things. When you gather together, I want you to do two things. Make sure on a regular practice, you baptize people. 
and remember the reality of dying to our old life and being resurrected in Christ to a new life. And then he said, take communion. Practice the Lord's table on a regular basis because it will keep my work, Jesus' work, central. And so I hope there's a little bit of clarity in your life about some areas that you might want to practice more doing and not just hearing. And I hope that you don't look at it as earning your way into heaven, but just as an expression of your love towards Jesus who has died for you and rose from the dead. And I hope you don't think you can do it without him. You can't. God can. Why don't you let him? And by taking communion, we're expressing just that. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, it says that he, during a meal with his disciples, took bread and broke it and said, this is a symbol of something that you've known all your life, but now it's a brand new symbol. It's a symbol of the body which is about to be broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And then there was a pause, and I'm sure it was strange. And a little bit later during the meal, he took a particular cup of several cups that they would drink together during that meal. And he said, this particular cup is a brand new covenant in my blood that will be shed and spilt for you. As you drink, drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim my death until I come again. There will be a day when we no longer take this. But until then, let's continue to remind one another why we would want to live this kind of life. That Jesus and Jesus alone is the rock on which we stand. Let's stand together. We're going to sing. And as you're prepared and ready, you can come and you'll be served by elders and staff members at the two stations up front and then two stations in the back. Let me pray for us. Father, what a great, a great thought it is that regardless of where we are in this whole hearing and doing, That in Christ, there's no condemnation. There's no turning away. There's no rejection. That it is your will that all would come to you by faith in Christ and that none would perish. God, would you give us the faith to believe that and to walk in faith with you, but not just to hear about it, but to live accordingly. If there's something that you want to say to us, God, we, we want to hear it now. If there is sin that is brought to mind, may we face it honestly and confess it repentfully. Have your way in us. Have your way.
In Jesus' name, amen.